Howdy, howdy, everybody. It's Callum from the Five Figures Podcast. It's been a fucking while. I have no idea what episode number this is because, well, you know, it's been about six weeks. I recently moved house. That That's the reason why I haven't been able to, to put anything up. I didn't have internet for the vast majority of that period because uh, there's a plethora of issues. The NBN was being a fucking bitch. The NBN is the National Broadband Network here in Australia, and it's... The, the process behind the MBN's evolution is a long and convoluted story, so I won't get into it, but yeah, shit, I don't know. The house that I moved into, some things didn't line up in terms of the internet, basically. A lot of it was my fault, to be honest, but, you know, it is what it is. Anyway, so it's been fucking ages. It's been like six weeks. I think the last event that we were just coming up to prior to me posting a podcast, was, what's it called, Nate Diaz versus Tony Ferguson, because that was the last event I watched in my in my old house, I remember sitting on the floor as I was trying to clean things out of my old place, as I was trying to move, and I was watching that event, and looking back on it, and it's only been what, a couple, it's been like a month now, that didn't feel like a fucking pay-per-view. That felt, I don't know, that felt like a flash in the pan. That felt like some random shit. That felt like that, what's that, TJ Dillashaw, which one, UFC 179, I think? Something like that. It was the one where I think Hennem Barrow had to pull out on short notice. He'd pull out on short notice, and they replaced the pay-per-view, like, main event with something else, and it was, it wasn't dreadful. It was just Joe Soto. That's it. UFC 177. Like, no one thinks back on that and goes, wow, what a pay-per-view. They think back and they go, that was a pay-per-view? Yeah. Anyway, that that's the kind of vibe that the last uh, pay-per-view had, for me at least. And since then, we've had some other things, some cards here and there. They've existed. It's been a time. Last week, we had, what's it called, Grasso versus Ariujo. That was pretty good, at least in terms of the main event. I really enjoyed the main event. I thought Alexa Grasso did a great job with the distance management. Thought she was, I mean, it was actually a pretty close fight. I think a lot of people have come away, and I've seen the commentary surrounding that matchup. A lot of people have come away, and it seems like they're discounting Vivian Ariujo and how close she made it, because I thought she was landing some really nice jabs. I thought she was landing a lot of good intercepting jabs as Alexa Grasso was coming in. And she landed a couple of good combinations. Obviously, she initiated the clinches. She initiated some grappling. But uh, yeah, I I thought Alexa Grasso won that fight. I thought she was getting the cleaner shots. Her one-two looked really nice. Yeah, I I thought it was really good work from little Mexican lass. And then Cup Swanson got fucked up by Jonathan Martinez. Inside low kick was what caused the finish. But all throughout the fight, it just looked like Cub was a, was a slight step behind. I thought Jonathan Martinez just technically looked sensational. Obviously, the low kicking was great. But just generally speaking, I thought he looked really solid. Dusko Todorovic spent a round on the bottom and then came out in the second and decided, you know what, fuck this guy. I'm just going to finish Jordan right. And he did. And he just came forward and was just throwing knees on knees in the clinch, throwing great body shots, right had, fuck all answers. It was kind of ugly, but also really beautiful. And what else was there? Alonzo Menefield fucking stormed the gates and knocked out Misha Serkinov. But at this point in Misha Serkinov's career, 
Not particularly surprising, unfortunately, because I like Misha Serkinov. Uh, Rafael Sunsau actually got himself some fans by beating up Victor Henry. Some gorgeous counter-striking in that matchup. Yeah. I thought there was some cool stuff throughout the course of this card. Tyra, he looked really good against CJ Vergara. Yeah, what else have we had since I decided to fuck off? We had Sanhagen versus Song Yadong. That was cool. Gregory Rodriguez got a victory on that card as well. There was the Andre Philly over Bill Algio fight. You know, there there was some good stuff on that card. What else was there? I mean, there's been some stuff. Ultimately, though, realistically, I don't think it's been... I don't think I've missed that much, to be honest. I don't think... Well, I did that the big wrap-up of... Did I do... Was my last one a preview or a wrap-up of the Paris card? I think it might have been a preview, and I don't think I did a wrap-up, but I recorded one. I did, like, an hour and a half recording, just talking about that card and how, you know, there were some really incredible performances. I was talking... I talked at length about Robert Whittaker and what he did. I talked at length about Cyril Gahn versus Taito Vasa because that's one of my favorite fights of the year thus far. I just thought that was sensational. I thought Ty was doing some interesting things. I thought Cyril was doing some really interesting things as well. And... Yeah, I just thought that was a really sensational fight. But I don't think I actually published that, unfortunately, which is a bit disappointing. Um, but again, I haven't actually checked out my fucking podcast history recently, so I have no idea. I, I might very well have talked about it. My last one was Garn vs. Chuavasa on... Yeah, yeah, we previewed it. That was about it. But yeah, that was a sensational card. Anyway, I'm back in time for the the biggest card of the year, or one of the biggest cards of the year, because these these last few cards of the year are pretty damn good, to be honest. After that abysmal UFC 279 pay-per-view, which the fact that you could charge in the US $80 for that shit is criminal. That should be that shouldn't be fucking legal. Because there is no value in that card and a bunch of hype beast bitches are going to go out there and support it and continue to inflate the fucking price. It's like, God damn, you can't give them the expectation that they can charge this amount of money and not, you know, and not get fucked for for doing so. You No, you've got to stand up for yourself and you've got to, you've got to demonstrate that this isn't okay. Oh, what else? Also, also, Jack fucking Jenkins made it into the UFC, baby. I don't believe... Yeah, I believe this, this happened... In the past couple of weeks, three or four weeks, so, so whilst I was on my little hiatus, but Jack Jenkins, one of the individuals, probably the main individual we were talking about on the Prospect Watch Australia video, and by the way, I do intend to do another Prospect Watch video at some point. It wasn't just a one and done, focusing on my home country and then fucking off. Like, I do intend to do another one at some point down the track. It just takes a little bit of time to, you know, not just find people, but obviously to collate and source footage of those people because they're regional fighters, and regional fighters are significantly more difficult to find footage on than someone who's in the UFC or Bellator or One or PFL, etc., etc., you know? Anyway, that's beside the point. Jack Jenkins was probably the main focus of that video, I'd say, and he has made the UFC. He got offered a contract. He had a pretty damn good performance on Dana White's Contender Series. Now, don't get me wrong. I fucking hate the Contender Series, like the concept behind it, because it's ultimately just a way to short pay a bunch of really talented prospects 
and go, hey, oh, you compete for the chance to be in the UFC and fight for not a living wage, because realistically, you'd have to fight about five times a year if you wanted to be, you know, if you wanted to be upper middle class. That's only $100,000 a year isn't even upper middle class. That's like middle class. It's verging on upper middle class, but it ain't upper middle class, okay? Maybe in the US it is, where I think the median wage is a little bit lower than here than here in Australia, but that's because we, uh, we've we got a bit more inflation. Uh, you know, our cost of living is a little bit higher. Anyway, yes, Jack Jenkins had a, had a fight with Freddie Linares. Had a few issues in the first round in terms of the stand-up, but was able to bring him down to the ground in each individual round, dominated, opened up a fucking mad cut, I believe, in the first round. And from there on, Linares was just kind of cooked. And yeah, the fight was ended with about half a minute to go in the final round, in the third round. And Jack, oh, Dana, Dana went on and was like, oh, I wasn't that impressed by this guy, you know. But, you know, the... The actual fucking matchmakers told me that he's actually a striker, usually. So, uh, yeah, we'll give him a contract. And I'm like, are you fucking serious, Dana, you fucking dickhead? I don't know, man. Like, people want to be heaping praise and heaping all this admiration and respect to Dana for revolutionizing this sport. But he doesn't watch half this shit. He has no idea what the fuck's going on. He's too old. He's too fucking sucked into the world of bullshit health crap. See all that bullshit about Dana? Oh, yeah, I was given, what, like 10, 10 and a half years? Like, to the day, basically, he's saying. Yeah, so someone predicted, this dude predicted that I was going to die on this specific day or down to the month or whatever it was. And I had to change my life, and so I I took on a keto diet. And he's like talking about keto, and he's talking about, I don't know, just a bunch of bro science shits coming out around Dana, which isn't surprising in any way, shape, or form, but, you know. Is what it is, I guess. Anyway, the moral of the story, the moral of that long waffle that I just went on was Jack Jenkins is now in the UFC. Fuck yeah. Baby, we did it. Prospect Watch paid off. Well, I mean, we had Sean Etchell. Sean Etchell, he was the second guy in my Prospect Watch Australia video, and he was on that Road to UFC uh, program event thingo that they had just prior to the Yuri Glover card, which was in Singapore, so they had a bunch of, like, Australasian and East Asian fighters go and and scrap it out for a chance in the UFC, it was, like, a significantly less publicized and promoted Dana White Contender Series, so it's like, what the fuck even is this bullshit, but yeah, Sean Etchell, I talked about him in my, in my Prospect Watch video, he made it into the Road to UFC thing, he was actually having a pretty good first round, but then he ended up getting submitted, he got reversed, and got submitted in the first round. So, I'm kind of one for one right now in terms of the Prospect Watch video. All all hopes rest on Cooper Royal when he does eventually go professional down the track. So, shout out Cooper Royal. Please don't make me look like a fucking idiot in retrospect. So, yeah. Anyway, that's that. Let's talk about UFC 280 because it's a fucking banger of a card, honestly. Uh, Obviously, if you are listening to this, the four of you that are listening to this, if that... I mean, why the fuck would you? It's been a month since I'd done one of these fucking things. There's no consistency. Anyway, that's beside the point. Charles Oliveira versus Islam Makashev is headlining the card. It's for the lightweight championship of the world, the vacant lightweight championship of the world, because Charles Oliveira obviously missed weight his last time out against Justin Gaethje. missed by, like, uh, 0.3 of a pound. Yeah, it was pretty wild. Anyway, yeah, he won that fight against Gaethje, as we covered on the podcast previously. 
in, in what I consider one of my best predictive episodes. I think I just broke down that fight exceptionally well. I don't think I'll break down this fight as exceptionally because I just don't care about Islam Makhachev as much as I do Justin Gaethje because I think Justin Gaethje is a more entertaining fighter. But Islam Makhachev is still really fucking good. Yes, Islam Makhachev, the individual that most people go to when they're looking for a comparison, they go to Khabib because Khabib is the mentor. He's not the actual brother, but he's kind of a brother figure in Islam's life. They both shared a coach in the form of Abdulmanap uh, Namagomedov, who is Khabib's father, who has sadly passed away. And, you know, they've got wrestling-centric styles. So people just go, well, they're the same fucking archetypal fighter. They exist not just under the same umbrella, but they are essentially the same fighter. And it's not. That's not the case at all. That is a very... There's a very surface-level analysis of the situation. What is Khabib? Because, I mean, I feel like you have to go into this discussion if you're going to talk about this fight, because it is such a big narrative going into the fight. So, yes, what is Khabib? Khabib, if you haven't watched my Barboza versus Khabib video, which I think goes into this in more depth, do that. But, in short, he is... Obviously, a pressure striker and wrestler. If you want to distill his style into just as few words as possible, that's what he is. And keep in mind, I don't just say pressure wrestler, because he is a pressure striker as well. Now, is he the most elegant, technically and fundamentally sound striker in the history of mixed martial arts? Fuck no. His striking at times looks... It looks awkward it looks terrible i mean he he doesn't have a strong base half the time particularly if you go back to you know fights with michael johnson he leans back at the waist way too much in that fight kind of relies on a philly shell which you know i guess not that surprising you see a little bit of shoulder rolling in muhammad ali's old fights and then when habib claimed the lightweight championship against alia quinta you know he was talking about having that muhammad ali jab and all that so you know, I, I think he takes the shoulder roll from boxing and he's, he has, he made it a point of concern to try and incorporate it into his style. But he often looked kind of awkward doing it, okay? He, his stand-up was always a bit awkward and fundamentally unsound. And yet, he gave really, really top quality, top-tier strikers like Edson Barboza, Justin Gaethje, Dustin Poirier, Conor McGregor, obviously. He gave these guys some issues on the feet. Conor McGregor was probably the best of them in terms of the offense on the feet. And he still got knocked down in the second round by one of the fastest overhand rights you will ever see. Khabib's game involves cutting off the cage and running... Well, not really cutting off the cage. That's the point of the Barboza Khabib video that I did. He doesn't really cut off the cage. He kind of just runs forward and the cage is cut off by virtue of him just getting in your face and just throwing as many shots as he possibly can. Alternatively, Islam Makhachev on the feet is a southpaw, not orthodox, and he's very heavily reliant on his left side, similar to the way that Israel Adesanya approaches the southpaw stance when Izzy switches southpaw. Lots of straight lefts, lots of left body and high kicks. Those are the weapons that you've got to look out for. His jab, I, th- I think, has come, ac- uh, come along quite a bit over the years, but yeah, he's still essentially a left-centric fighter. 
Meanwhile, you have Charles Oliveira over the other side of the octagon, and he is, he's not technically the incumbent champion, but he feels like the incumbent champion coming into this matchup in spite of the whole situation. He has put together one of the most incredible runs in, I mean, certainly lightweight history, perhaps UFC history, just the fact that he had as many losses back in the day as he did. You know, going from a guy who was always entertaining to see on a card to, oh, Charles Oliveira, verified lightweight contender. He's fighting on the card. How delightful. Go, that, that experience of going from one thing to the next has been, has been wild. It's been... It's kind of crazy. And just absurd to watch. Particularly when you go back and you, you see the losses to guys like Jim Miller when he, he made his... Was that his US... No, it wasn't his USC debut. He had a couple of fights before that. He fought Elkins, armbarred him. He fought uh, Escudero. Sorry. And he submitted him. But then he got knee-barred by Jim Miller. And I think that was mainly a product of him being a little too lackadaisical in the guard. Yeah, he was being a little too lackadaisical on the ground with Miller. You know, so you go back and you watch that fight, and to see his progression from that to what he currently is, fucking absurd. It's fucking absurd, particularly when you watch him versus, you know, Anthony Pettis, and he's just getting reversed every goddamn second. You know, he's constantly on Pettis, he's constantly on the back, and Pettis just grabs a hold of one arm, puts it to the ground, turns into him, reversal, reversal, just over and over and over again until Anthony, you know, Pettis managed to snatch a guillotine. Uh, in the third round, and was able to finish that five by submission. Same thing with Ricardo Lamas. Ricardo Lamas was able to get the guillotine in the second round versus versus Oliveira, and it's like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> Why? How does this keep happening? So yeah, to see him go from that to having the sensational control that he had over Dustin Poirier back in December of last year. The fact that he was able to weather the storm against Michael Chandler getting hurt early. The fact that he was able to weather the storm and get knocked down twice by Justin Gaethje. And then a couple of minutes on in that round, finish him with some gorgeous striking. Great right hand. That that kind of... Uh, I'm trying to remember. Was it, it was coming out of the the grappling, wasn't it? Oh no, it's, it was kind of Gaethje leaping in and then Oliveira. As Gaethje was exiting out of the pocket, Oliveira came forward with a, with a right hand and hurt him bad, and then went hunting for the back. Yeah, to see that progression, insane. On the feet, let's talk about how this matches up on the feet, because on the ground it's very interesting, but on the feet I think is what this fight is predicated on. Because Charles Oliveira is a guy, and go watch the Gaethje fights, go watch the Poirier fights, they illustrate this exceedingly well, and the Kevin Lee fight as well. The Kevin Lee fight is a really good example of this. He loves getting into the pocket, grabbing a single or a double collar tie, and fucking smashing knees into the body. Against Poirier, it was giving it was giving Dustin fits because Dustin could not allow himself I mean, he couldn't allow himself to get into the pocket and into close enough exchanges with Oliveira where Oliveira could clinch because he would just eat knees every single time. And it's problematic in this context for Oliveira to be throwing up those knees because obviously he puts, let's say hypothetically, he falls into the clinch, gets a single collar tie, puts a knee to the body up, puts that right knee up to the body, and Islam just takes the leg. You know, I mean, he's from AK, AK. He's got fucking options. He can go to the high crotch and then trip out the back leg. He can run the pipe with the single. 
he can just bundle Oliveira over with a double leg if he wants. Like, Charles Oliveira has one of his most significant weapons. It's a risky weapon to use in this context, is all I'm saying. So, it's not necessarily nullified because I think he will land a lot of he will land a lot of knees in the clinch in this fight, regardless. Even if he gets bundled bundled over a couple of times, I think what we've seen from Oliveira in recent times has demonstrated one thing very definitively: that this guy is no longer he will no longer really compromise. He has a set style and a set approach that he wants to apply to a fight, and it doesn't matter if you're Justin fucking Gaethje, Michael Chandler, Tony Ferguson, you know, it doesn't matter who the fuck you are. He will enact his game plan, and he will enact his approach. It doesn't matter how tough you are, how good you are on the counter. I mean, Dustin Poirier had those brutal southpaw right hooks that he was landing pretty consistently against Oliveira, and it still didn't dissuade Oliveira from entering into the clinch or trying to reach for the single collar tie off of his left hook or off of his jab and initiate those those clinch exchanges. Even when he was getting hit with that brutal right hook, he was still trying to initiate those same exchanges. So I think we're still going to be seeing a lot of clinching from Oliveira. We're still going to be seeing a lot of knees going to the body, but just expect that he's going to get put on his ass a couple of times for that. Additionally, one of his most significant weapons are his snap kicks. They are his teeps from both legs. And it sets up his brutal left hook, and it sets up his brutal right hand. It sets up his single collar tie. He will throw the lead leg tape, and then on the next exchange, he will pick up his lead leg, and his opponent will you know, they'll either not do anything, or they'll they might reach for the kick that isn't there. They might go and put themselves in a defensive posture to try and defend against a shot that they think's coming, and then he'll throw the left hook around the guard. The left hook is is something that he's been incorporating to incredible success recently. Not necessarily, like, it's not like knockout shots are coming off of that lift of the leg, but he is landing good shots regardless. And I think it just sets up the left hook later on for when he wants to throw it naked without that that setup of the, the pickup, the picking up of the lead leg. He doesn't need it later on once he has established that setup. So those are sort of his general weapons... Again, loves the single collar tie and uses it both offensively and defensively. So when he falls forward into the clinch after throwing his hands, he will he will get the single or the double collar tie and then he'll look for his elbows and he'll look for his knees to the body. But he will also do that as guys are coming in on him. As they're trying to close the distance, he will use the single collar tie to throw knees. And he will also use it in the... I know we've already mentioned him one time on this podcast, once on this specific specific podcast, but you know we're going to do it again because I think it's worthwhile. He uses the single collar tie in a similar way to Israel Adesanya, who will use a single collar tie and kind of use it to frame and push off his opponents. He did that really effectively against Brad Tavares, repeatedly did that really effectively against Jared Cannonier and Paulo Costa as well. And... You know, Charles Oliveira sometimes does that same kind of thing where he uses the single collar tie to push his opponent away or frame and and defend a shot that goes over the top. You know, if he's framing on the shoulder, then he can kind of just flare his elbow up. And if someone's trying to throw an overhand right over the top of that that elbow, they've got to clear the elbow. and And it can be quite difficult. You've got to cover a lot more distance if someone's framing on your shoulder. 
So Oliveira uses, he can use the clinch and he can use the single collar tie or the double collar ties as a defensive maneuver, a defensive approach to the fight. And then you've got the ground game. So you've got Oliveira who is just sensational on the bottom in terms of creating messy exchanges. He was put on his back repeatedly by Kevin Lee. Sometimes he was, he kind of went there willingly, but a lot of the time he was taken down by Kevin Lee and he was initiating exchanges. He was using X-Guard. He was using De La Hiva. He was looking for foot sweeps or when they were in full guard, he is trying to set up the armbar or he's trying to set up the triangle and he's using these opportunities. He's using a certain submission to transition into another submission. He's using the threat of the heel hook to turn a guy and give up their back. He's, he's forcing them to give up their back, and then you know he might try and take the back, or he might use that as an opportunity to stand up. He's the, similar to Colby Covington in the sense that he works up and down and up and down and up and down. Everything kind of flows into the other thing. It's not like, okay, I've taken Charles Oliveira down after he was punching me in the face. All right, I've won this exchange. I've probably, you know, I've taken him out of his game. No, no, Charles Oliveira's game is extremely comprehensive. It features the whole fucking... It features the whole game. It features grappling and striking, and they work interchangeably with one another. That's why when Gaethje hurt him in their fight with the left hook, Oliveira just went to his back because he's like, it's not like, it's not like I can't grapple, you know? If you want, if you hurt me, you've got to come into my guard, you know? And then Gaethje didn't want to do that, so... Oliveira just got back to his feet and went back to striking. So one thing played into his advantage for the other facet of the mixed martial arts meta. You know? Where obviously that's not the case for most people. Most people, they either prefer to grapple or strike. And if they're taken out of their preferred realm, then they get uncomfortable or their game starts to fall apart. Not for Charles Oliveira. You take him out of one element and he'll go to the other very comfortably. And if you don't want to approach him in that area, he'll go back to striking or he'll go back to grappling, whatever. It doesn't fucking matter to him. So, yeah, he does a lot of great work on the bottom. Creates some sensational exchanges. Really quick on the transitions. Got a great anaconda choke. Breton's really good stuff from the snapdown as well. His takedowns, I think, have come very far over the years, but yeah, it's not just singles or doubles that you have to look out for with Charles. I think he's a lot stronger now uh, as he's filled out and he's become a bigger lightweight, and as such, he's got some threats from the body lock, but also, like I just mentioned, the front headlock. He's great from the snap down, and I mean, you've got to defend your neck, similar to, you know, if you're fighting Brian Ortega. Don't let him snap you down because the second he snaps you down, either he's setting up the Das, the Anaconda, or the Guillotine. It's one of those. And if you are not minding your P's and Q's, you're getting fucking subbed. See Brian Ortega versus Cub Swanson. That's the kind of thing with, with Charles. Now, Charles doesn't get... Like, he he's... I believe he's, he currently holds the record for most submissions in UFC history. But, yes, submission wins in UFC history 16. The most of any fighter. But he most of his submission attempts he doesn't get. He's using them to create exchanges and to create scrambles and to get back to the feet and to just offset his opponents. He's using a lot of these submission attempts as sweeps. 
Heel hooks for him are an opportunity. Heel hooks or knee bars, these kinds of things, are an opportunity for him to unsettle his opponent. Oh, my opponent's on top of me and they're, they're trying to land shots. I'm going to switch my hips. I'm going to underhook the leg. And I'm going to try and, let's say, invert for a leg attack. I might not get it, but what I know is going to happen, the opponent's got to respect it because they know how good I am in terms of the submission game. So they're going to respect my attempt, and if they respect it, then they're going to give up position. And that's exactly what Oliveira wants. If he gets the submission, fuck yeah, how delightful. But ultimately, it's about upsetting and disrupting his opponents. And he's very fucking good at that. And he's coming up against Islam fucking Makashev, who is a guy who is he's really locked down. I mean, we saw this in the Tiago Moises fight. Moises has that Brazilian jiu-jitsu approach of, I mean, not Brazilian jiu-jitsu approach, because nowadays there are a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys who do prioritize position over submission. But Tiago Moises is kind of from that old school. I'm going to look for the sub. I'm going to look for the back. I'm going to make it a point of interest to go for the back. And as such, he kind of lost out to a superior positional grappler in the form of Islam Makashev, who, when he got the back, you I mean, you know how the Dagestani game has evolved. You know how it works. Strip posts, break guys down on the cage, push them down, and, and don't give them the opportunity to stand up. If you can, you know, wrap the legs. But a lot of the time, it's, it's taking the back and utilizing pressure to push down on your opponent and, and put them on the cage and keep them there for an extended period of time. I'm sorry, by the way. You can you, I think you can hear my housemate's fucking bird in the background. I'm going to throttle this fucking thing because, you know, it doesn't shut the fuck up. Either I put it right next to me and he, he's quiet, relatively speaking, but he kind of makes these sounds that are really fucking irritating and you can hear them on the mic. Or I put him out in the living room and if he's out in the living room, then he gets angry because no one's out there with him. And so he just screams and squawks and it breaks your fucking ears. Anyway, this is completely beside the point and, you know, an extracurricular discussion. I'm, I'm going to throw off this fucking bird, though. I'm going to I'm gonna end this motherfucker's life because he's fucking irritating the shit out of me. Anyway, yes. Islam is... You know, he's not as frenetic a grappler as your Khabib's, for example. Khabib, I mean, his entire game was... Yes, I am going to look for positional dominance, but once I attain the position, I'm going to land a fuckload of ground and pound. There are lots of people who seem to conflate Khabib with laying prayers, with stalling-type grapplers, people who are just looking to get on top and do nothing. And that's the dumbest shit I've ever fucking heard. Because if you've ever actually watched a Khabib fight, then you know that his entire game is get on top and beat the fuck out of this person. Wrap up the legs and beat... Like, watch him versus Edson Barboza. He's wrapping up the legs, and then he's landing like 50 consecutive unanswered ground-and-pound strikes, and they're all brutal, you know? Whereas Islam, you don't really see as much of that. He's very much a positional guy. He's not really going to hunt the ground and pound as much as as Khabib did. And perhaps that makes him slightly less entertaining as a fighter. But yeah, I think he's... Ultimately, his ground control, his top control is just sensational. And this is going to be a, a real test of Charles Oliveira's ability to disrupt someone with as much experience and with as solid a foundation in top control as as Islam. 
Now, the positions that you've got to think we're going to see at some point, you're going to see Charles pushed up against the fence and Islam's going to be trying to take the back. He's going to be riding the back and he's going to be looking to strip one of the arms that Oliveira is using as a post. Now, what does Oliveira do in this scenario? Because I just I think Oliveira is a more frenetic grappler than Tiago Moises. I think he's obviously a better grappler than Dan Hooker and Drew Dober, who are some of Islam's more recent opponents, and uh, and Bobby Green, who Islam beat back in February of this year on short notice. But you know, what does he do in that scenario? Does he look to invert? I would presume, you know, if Islam's looking for that Dagestani hand trap, those kinds of weapons, that, yeah, you, he, Charles is probably going to be trying to turn back into him. And that's the, the interesting thing, because a lot of these strikers who are forced to grapple with Islam, their approach is, I want to build back up. So I'm trying to consolidate my post. And that's where they have issues, because Islam is... He's stripping the posts. He's not allowing you to build back up. Oliveira, he has enough weapons on the bottom, on the ground, to be able to embrace turning back into Islam and kind of forsaking building up his base. And then from there, he can look for things like inversions. He can look to threaten heel hooks and shit like that. But it's going to be very difficult because... The thing you always have to keep in mind is grappling takes time. And if Islam gets Charles down, I think in all likelihood he's got him down for a bare minimum, a minute. It's going to be very difficult for Charles to just get back. Like, I don't think there's going to be, I think there's going to be very few 15 second ground exchanges. There's going to be very few scrambles which just, which end quickly. And this is going to hurt Charles because as much as, you know, Charles can do some really great work on the bottom. We're all aware of that. But the likelihood, of, the likelihood of him getting a submission, just getting a clean submission on the ground, not, not after hurting Islam or anything like that on the feet, nothing like that, but just getting a submission on the ground while they're in a grappling exchange. The odds of that, not particularly high, in my personal opinion. I think Islam is too defensively sound, has a really strong base, and the positions that he's going to be putting Charles in are not conducive for Charles to get off really easy submission attempts. So, what this probably means is that if Islam gets a takedown, they're going to be down there for protracted periods. And obviously, if you're down on the ground, on the bottom, for extended periods, the judges are looking at you and they're going, well, you're not winning the fight. So I can imagine that Islam is just going to win rounds. He's going to win at least one or two rounds just by virtue of being on top for extended periods of time, maybe threatening back control, maybe landing a bit of ground and pound. But yeah, just not giving Charles the opportunity to do anything effectual that give Charles points. So the question is, can Charles win three rounds? Because I think this fight might actually go to decision which is a bold take because Charles Oliveira has not looked like a guy who's been who's going to be going to decision in his most recent fights. You know, you knew within about 10 seconds of the fight with Gaethje starting. No, 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 someone's getting finished in this fucking matchup. Whereas this one, I think this one could stretch out a bit longer. Personally, I think Charles Oliveira, his gas tank is actually pretty impressive. I think it, it looked pretty damn solid against Kevin Lee. You know, I think 
he's been, uh, ever since he came back up from lightweight, his gas tank back down at featherweight was fucking atrocious. You know, that's part of the reason why he got submitted against Anthony Pettis, because he just, he was gassed in the third round. And those those back attempts, or those that back control just, it didn't have the energy necessary to to stay there. Pettis was able to reverse those positions really easily. And when Oliveira was shooting, he didn't have his posture right because he didn't have the energy to do so, and, you know, subsequently he got submitted. But ever since coming up to lightweight, he's been, I think, a lot better in terms of his gas tank. You know, went into the third round with Kevin Lee, went into the third round with Tony Ferguson, who, you know, now he's now washed, but this was in December of 2020, so this was immediately after the Gaethje fight, and Tony still, there was still a decent pace in that fight, and Charles still looked damn solid going into the decision. You know, went into the second round with David Tamor, was throwing fucking bombs, beautiful elbows in that matchup with Tamor. And, you know, I, I, I just think, generally speaking, his gas tank has looked pretty damn solid. I mean, he got the finish against Dustin Poirier in the third round, and I thought he looked looked great in the first round. I thought he was going to gas after that first round just because of how fast-paced that fight was. But then in the second round, obviously, he spent most of the time on top and just doing his thing. But still, I thought he looked really conscientious and really there for that, that second round versus Poirier, which indicates that his gas tank was holding up. So I think his gas tank, I think his cardio is solid, is going to be solid enough to go five full rounds with Islam if, if there's a high pace? Probably not. The thing is, Islam is not a high-paced striker. He's just not, okay? And I think because he is so left-hand oriented and he doesn't, like he throws his jab, he, his jab I think is is better than it, it once was. But he's not, he doesn't faint it as much. And because of that, on the feet, Charles is not going to feel as pressured as he would otherwise. Like, if you have a really good jab, you can keep your lead hand in the face of the opponent constantly. You can just faint it, or you can you can pop the jab out. And obviously, a jab doesn't use as much energy as a big, wily overhand left, overhand right, whatever you're using. You know, so you can put the jab out there a lot more frequently. And if your opponent doesn't respect it, then they get their nose popped back and they end up bleeding. And, then, you know, see Robert Whittaker versus Yoel Romero. You can break an orbital with a jab, okay? So your opponent has to respect the jab if you keep putting it out there. And as such, it keeps them moving. It keeps them active. It can, it can kind of chip away at their gas tank. But Islam doesn't really have that weapon on the feet. He doesn't really have a really constant jab or threat of the jab so I think on the feet Oliveira is going to be determining a lot of the exchanges and as such I don't think it's going to sap his gas tank as hard as it would otherwise versus a guy like Khabib who is just in your face and he's constantly throwing shots when the, when you're on the feet and he's just he is he's an absolute fucking phenom in terms of the pace you're not going to get that with Islam it's going to be a lot more measured it's going to be a lot more slow and guys often allow him to fight at that pace just because they're just they're so aware of the grappling, and I just don't think Oliveira is going to have the same kind of respect. And whilst that is problematic, because he's probably going to get bundled over at some point and then going to lose a round by virtue of just being on the bottom, it also means that he's going to be more confident with his striking. So there's a trade-off there, you know? Guys don't fight like themselves against Islam, when they're strikers at least. They're, they're striking... I mean, it's, it's the same with any wrestler. The threat of the takedown, it inhibits your striking ability. With Dan Hooker, I mean, Dan comes out usually and 
he's immediately on that outside calf kick. Go back and watch the fight between Hooker and Felder in New Zealand. Hooker in the first 30 fucking seconds, he's throwing that outside calf kick. Same thing against Dustin Poirier. That, that's just one of his fucking trademark shots. And he comes out and he's not throwing it with anywhere near the same kind of confidence that he usually does versus Makashev. He's not throwing his long rangey push kicks down the middle. He's not throwing those that he he's not throwing them with the confidence that he usually does. And that's just Islam, the threat, the threat of Islam's skill set. So sometimes you don't even need to throw anything if you're as good as Islam on the ground. Just the sim like the narratives going into the fight influence your opponent's perspective and it inhibits their ability to fight in the way that they want to or the way that they need to fight. And you're not going to get that with Charles Oliveira. Charles Oliveira is going to come out and he's going to be throwing his left hook off of that picking up of the lead leg. He's going to be framing. He's going to be looking for the for the single collar ties. And he's going to be throwing brutal elbows off of those collar ties. And he's going to be throwing knees to the body. It doesn't matter that you can threaten him with that takedown attempt. He's going to be throwing those things anyway. And that's why this fight is so exciting. And that's why this fight should be a fucking banger. Or at the very least, interesting. Even if it turns into this really slow, Islam-oriented, just, you know, he's on top and he's mitigating all of the threats that Charles provides or presents, I still think it will be interesting. But uh, I honestly think, I think Charles Oliveira should, you know, if you have a good line on Charles, I think you should take it because I think he has a really good chance in this fight to pick up three rounds. I just think Islam... Well, he's got to be quick on the takedowns. He's got to be constant with the takedowns. And, I I mean, he just... I just don't think he has the submission threat necessary to really concern Oliveira on the ground. And I don't think he is frenetic enough on the feet to... To pick up rounds where Oliveira is able to shrug off the takedown or is able to build up base. Because there are going to be times when Islam isn't able to get Charles down. And it's at that point that you have to go, well, can Islam land a couple of shots on the feet before his next takedown attempt? And the answer is, I just don't think he's going to be able to get that volume going. I just think Charles has a good chance of winning three rounds in this contest and getting uh, getting a decision victory. So yeah, that that's my prediction for that little old fight. What else is on this fucking card? Heaps of stuff. The co-main event is as good, or nearly as good. It's Aljamain Sterling versus TJ Dillashaw, and I think that's a sensational matchup. It's actually a pretty decent matchup for Aljamain Sterling, particularly when Jose Aldo was just sitting there, had just beaten Rob fucking Font, and was looking like a great next contender to fight for the belt, and then didn't get his fucking opportunity, which was a bit of bullshit. But whatever, we get TJ Dillashaw versus Aljamain Sterling. TJ Dillashaw is obviously coming off of that fight with Corey Sandhagen. That was a fucking five-round banger. He did have some issues with the range control. I thought the lateral movement of Corey Sandhagen honestly gave Dillashaw some some major issues. And that has kind of been, well, I mean, that's been a recurring theme, if only in two fights. Dillashaw had issues with Dominic Cruz when Dom started off and he was using a lot of really nice lateral movement. Dillashaw was trying to walk Dom onto high kicks and he he wasn't able to find his timing with those high kicks and as such he ended up losing the first three rounds before he kind of more permanently switched to body kicking and low kicking instead of looking for the high kick and then he won the final two rounds and 
you know, it was it was a really tight, contentious decision. But yeah, lateral movement kind of undid him there because he was trying to lead Dominic Cruz into the high kick and Dom was fainting in one direction, you know, doing his usual thing, fainting one direction, heading out the other. You know, it, not until fucking Marlon Vera has someone really been able to punish Dominic Cruz with the high kick. And then Dillashaw had a lot of issues with Corey Sandhagen, who's got great lateral movement. When he gets pushed up to the cage, levels out his stance, faints in both directions, darts really effectively with both hands. And Dillashaw had some issues cutting off the cage in a way that we, you know, we don't often see him have issues with. But yeah, he still got the victory. Uh, I mean, I personally thought Corey did enough to win that fight, but it was incredibly close, and I thought the wrestling exchanges, well, Dillashaw, you know, he's a great wrestler, was able to clinch up and was able to grapple enough to make a decent claim that he had won the fight just by virtue of control time. But he's coming in against a superior grappler in the form of Aljamain Sterling, whose back control is some of the best in mixed martial arts, who's got great work from the body lock, a surprisingly strong guy, and his transitions are very quick, very quick, as we saw it against Corey Sandhagen, and against Piotr Jan, you know, in their rematch. This is an interesting fight, primarily just because of the way that they strike on the feet, I think, because Aljamain is such a linear striker, you know, so many of his, his so much of his offense comes down the middle, down the the straight line. Lots of teeps, lots of bush kicks from both stances. He'll switch southpaw and orthodox, and he'll throw from both stances. He will also go with the body and the high kick, particularly out of southpaw. I think he has a really nice southpaw body and high kick. And his jab, I mean, for years I was kind of commenting, ah, I don't, I don't really see his hands as being that effectual at all. And he's always kind of had these really loopy hooks. But I think it was, when was it? Was it the, it was the Pedro Munoz fight where he put on this crazy pace versus Munoz, who was cutting off the cage very diligently, but getting pieced up most of the time. And yeah, Aljamain was doing a great job showing off his linear strikes, his jabs from both stances. Really good work in that contest. And and additionally, he didn't take, like he got low kicked a few times because it's a Pedro Munoz fight, it's kind of inevitable, but did a really good job inhibiting some of those Munoz strengths. And then against Rivera as well. Jimmy Rivera is such an incredible technical striker. And Aljamain was able to beat him with the jab. Was able to use his jab quite effectively versus Jimmy Rivera. And I, that just kind of opened my eyes. 2019 was the year where I went, oh, Aljamain Sterling could win a belt. Because he's a lot better than a lot of these guys are giving him credit for being. That said, his gas tank was a problem in those fights. In the Munoz fight, you, he goes into the third round and... He looks very visibly gassed, and his his pace is still still kind of there, but the shots are not as clean. They're just nowhere near as clean, and Munoz is getting in on him a lot easier. And then that kind of... That became a big part of the narrative in the first fight with Piotr Jan, which... When did that happen? 2021? Yeah, that happened in March of 2021. Aljo obviously ended up winning the belt via disqualification because Piotr Jan put up an illegal knee. That ended the contest in the fourth round, but I think it was very clear to everyone who was watching the contest at the time that Piotr Jan was coming on and was winning the fight at that point. He lost, I thought Piotr lost the first round. Aljo's 
pace was insane in the first round. Was landing some really good shots. Again, great linear striking. He was using lateral movement very effectively. Side-to-side movement was looking really good. And it was... I mean, Piotr starts slow, but Piotr could not cut off the cage very effectively against Aljo in that first round. But it was once Aljo started to fail with some of the takedowns in the second and the third... Piotr was, when they would get into those clinching exchanges, we know how good Yarn is, and we'll talk about Yarn in a second with his fight with Sean O'Malley. But, you know, when Yarn gets into the clinch, he's looking for those outside trips, and Aljo having to not only be on the back foot against Piotr on the outside and try and keep up this insane striking pace, not, not just that, but also having to defend really diligently in the clinch because he's getting outside tripped or... You know, he's getting hit with shots on the break from Piotr. It just, it was all a recipe for gassing quite significantly. And that, that's exactly what happened. Aljo gassed quite bad. And by the fourth round, it, it looked like Piotr was on his way to a stoppage. And then he got the stoppage. It just, you know, it worked out the opposite way to how I think he anticipated. <laughs> he uh, legally need Aljo and that was the end of the fight. That was, he was disqualified. Then they rematched earlier this year, and Aljo was able to get it done. Was able to get it done by a decision, which was very awesome because there were so many motherfuckers out there like, "Oh no, Aljo's getting fucked up." This is I can't wait to watch this clown get, you know, his comeuppance. And then he fucking decisioned Piotr with two with two rounds where Piotr had like was just defending the the choke, the rear naked choke, because Aljo was on his back the whole time. And it's like, wow, okay, yeah. You fucking idiots. How about you actually analyze a fight before talking all this shit? Because going into that rematch, I I, I mean, I don't, I don't think I was doing the podcast at the time, but I was thinking to myself, you know, you know Aljo's his chances here are a lot higher than I think people give him credit for. And I think he knows where he went wrong in that first fight. So it's just a matter of adapting and playing a more patient game, not putting out as much... Like, not expending all of his energy in the first round when Piotr himself isn't even throwing that much. He takes a round off, so why would you throw a hundred strikes? Like, save some of that for later on when Piotr himself is coming on, you know? You know what I mean? Yeah, so he's coming into this fight off of one of the more impressive victories of his career. He's been doing a bunch of dumb shit recently. He was like, photographed and, and put all on social media how he was hanging out with Andrew Tate and the Tate brothers. And it's like, cool, great. So what the fuck, Aljo? I was here trying to support you, and then you got to be, like, hanging around with this motherfucker. What are you doing? And also, apparently, he's walking out to his own rap track or something like that. I think I think I saw an interview with Ariel Hawani, and he said that, oh, the, there's something in the works. And it's like, I, please no, please no. Do we not remember what happened to fucking Tyron Woodley? I believe Tyron Woodley released Beat Your Ass like directly after beating Darren Till. So after beating Darren Till and releasing that song, he never won another fucking fight. So don't do this, Aljo. You don't put that curse on yourself, you know? Anyway, that's all beside the point. He's fighting TJ, and so this is gonna be really interesting because TJ, you know, so much so much of his striking game is darting from both stances. Like, he'll switch southpaw, dart with the straight left, and then switch into orthodox, and then come with the right hand over the top. Things like that. He uses kicks. He embeds them into his striking exchanges really effectively. Great low kicker. Great high kicker as well. He's one of the few guys who has a very movement-oriented style. 
who is also really fucking good at high kicks. Because, obviously, to throw a kick, you need to plant one foot. And to throw a powerful kick, you definitely need to plant one foot. You can throw jumping, you know, you can throw some spazzy jumping switch kicks or some shit. But, you know, if you want to have consistency with your high kicks and your body kicks and things of that ilk, then you're going to have to plant one of your feet. And TJ is able to do things like lots of shifting strikes, lots of darting with straight strikes and then switching stances and landing hooks as he as he gets into the pocket. Lots of, you know, flattening out his stance and, you know, showcasing really good lateral movement side to side. You know, lots of uh, shifting around, you know, like keeping his stance and moving around his opponents. He does all these things, and he's also simultaneously able to put up really nice high kicks, which is really impressive. It's just, you know, as much as he is a fucking drug cheat, uh, as much as he is, you know, a fucking steroid boy, Mr. EPO himself, he does have a really aesthetically pleasing, impressive striking style, and he integrates things very well. But... Uh, yeah, I think it's just it's going to be really interesting because he has a lot of really good, really good darting striking techniques, and he's coming against a guy who's very linearly oriented. He's going to come right down the middle, and is also really really fucking long for the division. Has great uh, lateral movement himself as well. That that's an important detail. I think this is a really great matchup for Aljo on the feet. Honestly, as long as he can moderate his pace and he doesn't gas out like he did in that first Piotr fight, I think he can have a lot of success just going down the middle with the rear push kicks to the body of Dillashaw and maintaining space that way. Uh, I don't know if Dillashaw is going to have the power necessary to put Aljo out. I mean, Dillashaw can take Aljo down as well. That, that, that's something that we do need to acknowledge. He has that gorgeous... He has that gorgeous step around the outside lead leg takedown that we saw against John Lineker. There's a great video with Absolute MMA. Dillashaw did with did a seminar with Joseph Benavidez back in like 2014. He went to Absolute MMA and they, they recorded it. And he demonstrates the takedown. It's just so impressive. He starts in orthodox. He switches southpaw essentially in the middle of the double leg. And he brings, as he switches southpaw, he brings... What was previously the rear leg, his right leg, he brings that around the lead leg of his opponent, the left leg of his opponent. And then he uses his head to kind of push his opponent over the leg that is now blocking their lead. So they can't post or anything. And so they end up uh, getting bundled over, as John Lineker did like three fucking times in their fight. It's a really sexy shot. But he also has just a, you know, he can incorporate... Stock standard, solid double leg. He's He's got some wrestling, but does he want to fuck around with Aljo on the ground? Aljo's bottom game, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I can't remember how he's on the bottom, actually, now that I think about it. Um, But I would not fuck around with Aljo. I just wouldn't fuck around with Aljo on, on the ground at all. I mean, he's a Sarah, Matt Sarah, black belt. Henzo Gracie black belt would be technically, I think. And 
he's his back control is just so sensational. He's so great at transitioning to the back that you wouldn't want to fuck around with him in that realm at all. He's also very fucking strong. So even if Dillashaw is able to get him down, I, I just don't see Dillashaw sitting in full guard for an extended period of time. I see Aljo breaking the posture of Dillashaw down, pushing on the back of the head, posting with an arm, and pulling his legs out. And then probably reinitiating a scramble by shooting back in on Dillashaw as Aljo himself stands up, you know? So, yeah, I, I think Aljamain Sterling should be the favorite in this contest. I believe he is the favorite in this contest. If I jump on Sportsbet real quick and have a look at... What's it called? And have a look at the odds here in Australia. Aljamain Sterling is $1.58 versus TJ Dillashaw, who's $2.39 to win. And, yeah, I think that's... That's pretty accurate. Aljamain Sterling should be the favorite in this contest. I just think he has more options. He's great on the back, as we've talked about repeatedly. I think he's got great lateral movement. He's He was really solid, consistently forcing Pedro Munoz to readjust his stance and readjust his position in the cage. And Pedro, you know, he wants to work that outside low kick. And Aljo was constantly, like, yeah, he got kicked a few times, but he's constantly utilizing his lateral movement to draw out the kick and, and heading in the opposite direction. He's punishing those low kicks when they do come. And and so much of Pedro's, I'm sorry I'm referencing the Pedro fight so much, but it's probably my favorite Aljamain Sterling performance, honestly. It was a really entertaining matchup. But... Pedro requires, like, he cuts off the cage, and then once he has you in position, that's when he goes for the low kick. And Aljamain just didn't give him that opportunity. So I think that really demonstrates the ability of Aljo to just constantly utilize side-to-side movement, lateral movement, to disrupt his opponent's rhythm. Dillashaw, he's really good at catching guys as they circle out, or not so much against Dominic Cruz, he wasn't, but he can be. He's got a great leaping left hook. His work from Southpaw is great. Great left body and high kicks from Southpaw. Yeah, and obviously he works with Dwayne Ludwig. And they're a very cerebral matchup. They're a very cerebral uh, combination of coach and fighter. So I'm sure they'll they'll come in with some tricky things. But ultimately, I think if you, you're playing the smart bet, you've got to go Aljamain Sterling. And then you've got Piotr Yarns taking on Sean O'Malley in the third fight down the card. We've talked for so fucking long. We've talked for nearly an hour, and we've only talked about two fights. But that's how good those fights are. Particularly Charles Oliveira versus Islam Makashev. You know, sensational fights. But yes, Piotr Yarns versus Sean O'Malley. Uh, this is a difficult one for Sean because Piotr doesn't low kick as much as I would like him to sometimes, but he does outside low kick. He does. And that's something that Sean's had some issues with. Also, obviously, Sean is a... Like, he will throw kicks, obviously. He has a lot... Similar to Aljo, a lot of linear kicks. Lots of push kicks down the middle. Lots of snap kicks. He Not just, like... When I say push or teep kicks, I'm thinking, like, the Muay Thai... You know, you put your you pull your knee up, and then from there is when you flick out the kick. That's how you get most power. But there's also that kind of emerging snap kick where you don't even it's not like you lock and load the the push kick 
No, you just kind of lift the leg almost fully extended. And it might only hit like the bottom of the diaphragm, but it's it's really, it can hurt motherfuckers. Some guys have been hitting me with that in in mixed martial arts sparring recently. And I'm thinking to myself, damn, I just, you don't see it coming because you, know, you don't pick the, le- the leg up before throwing it. You just kind of throw it fully extended already. And if you know your distance well enough, then you can catch someone real bad with it. Anyway, you know, Sean O'Malley throws stuff like that every now and again. Throw, throws lots of linear kicks. But ultimately, I think he is a very boxing-centric striker. Really nice rear-hand uppercut, as we saw against Eddie Wineland, as you're all aware from the Eddie Wineland fight. Um, great spinning spinning heel kick that he sometimes spams a little too often for my liking. But yeah, I think this is a difficult fight for him to win because the outside low-kicking game of Piotr Jan is still really fucking solid. I just... All I'm saying is I envision Piotr Jan hitting a lot of outside trips on Sean O'Malley, honestly, because Sean... I don't know, I just feel like, even though he is really good on the back foot, as we saw against Chris Mutinho, who is obviously not on the same level as Piotr Jan, but did come forward a lot. Even though he is quite solid on the back foot, I don't know, I mean, he, he does get a bit flustered when guys do break down the distance on him. And there are very few guys in the Bantamweight division as good at breaking down distance as Piotr Jan. And that's just by virtue of his, his arsenal. He uses that gorgeous jab cross from Orthodox, and then he switches stance into southpaw and throws a straight left down the middle off of that one-two from Orthodox. And it just closes distance so incredibly quickly because you're taking an additional step forward when you switch stance in that exchange. And with someone like O'Malley, who sometimes gets a little bit flustered when he's pushed up against the cage, he does good to level out his stance and use hooks as he circles out, but and and also use frames. He's very good at framing as guys try and push him back to the cage and he wants to circle out. He frames across the shoulder or across the face and he uses that to, to guide him off of the cage. But Pyotrian just closed the distance so incredibly quickly with weapons like that 1-2 switch 2 that, I don't know, you got to be a bit scared if you're a Sean O'Malley fan. But I do think Sean O'Malley, his jab's fucking sensational from both stances. Got some great, great body kick offense and high kick offense, obviously. Great dexterity with his hips. As we saw, what was... Who was the name of the dude that he beat a couple of years ago? Would have been back in 2020? Um... Wasn't Pivo, wasn't Almeida, it was Quinones, that's it. He beat Quinones uh, back at USC 248 in March of 2020. And that finishing exchange came off of a really cool high kick, this left high, I think it was a left high kick, I might be wrong. But they were in a very short space there. There wasn't a lot of space to put up a high kick. In the range that they were in, you would honestly more so expect a knee. But he's got great dexterity with his high kicks, and he was able to put up the high kick and hurt Quinones, and that led to the finish. So that's something that I think Piotr has to be quite aware of as he's stepping in, or as he might be on the back foot. But, yeah, I think 
Piotr Jan is the rightful favorite in this contest just by virtue of outside tripping games, great. Really good on the front headlock when he does take guys down. He has great switch striking. His jab is sensational. Does a really good job kicking the outside low kick. Yeah. I mean, he knocked down Jose, didn't I? Oh, no, it was it was like it was something to the body. It was a left hook to the body or something like that. Yeah, it goes to the body really effectively as well. That that's a big detail. I mean, Sean, not the biggest guy in the world, and I, I imagine that if you hit him in the liver, there's there's not a lot there that's going to be protecting that poor little liver from significant damage. So, yeah, I think I think Piotr should be the rightful favorite in this contest, but. Sean does put on a crazy pace, and Piotr takes a little while to get going. He sits behind his half guard for just a little too long, stands very tall, sits behind his half guard for pretty much for a lot of the first round, and that might lose him the first round. And then all you have to do if you're Sean O'Malley is just keep throwing volume, land some low kicks if you possibly can, keep firing off the jab and the one-two from both stances, and pray that you win at least three minutes of that second round. And if you do, then you can probably just survive until the final bell and you win via decision. So Piotr's strategy of just taking it slow initially, he might have adjusted it for the fact that this is a three-round fight. He hasn't been in many three-round fights recently, you know, ever since he, he moved in the championship picture versus Aldo. But... Yeah, it, unless he's completely adjusted his approach to the fight, then he might have some issues in terms of volume, and he he could lose a round just by virtue of not throwing enough. Some like some Romero shit. Elsewhere on this card, I honestly, I've been talking for so long; it's an hour and five minutes now that I'm just going to kind of run through some of the interesting ones. I think Darius versus Gamrot will be really fun. I'm just excited to see. Gamrot pick up single legs and see what Dariush does, honestly. Because, and excited to see what Gamrot does off of his back, because I assume Dariush is probably going to get him down with the double. I think, yeah, that should be an interesting fight. There's Caitlin Shikagian versus Mano Farrow. I don't care. Uh, Bilal Muhammad versus Sean Brady is interesting. Mainly because the luster of Sean Brady wore off a little bit after his fight with Michael Chiesa because Michael Chiesa got the better of the the hands, the better of the stand-up exchanges in a lot of that matchup. And then Sean Brady also, I don't know, I just keep thinking back to his grappling match with Craig Jones recently, which, what was that at? Versus Sean Brady. I'm just looking it up real quick. Fury grappling, I think it was. Yeah, Sean was able to get the victory over Craig Jones. And it was pretty fucking dull. It was really boring. Um, It was basically just Sean sitting in top, nullifying all of the offense that Craig was trying to put up on bottom. And nothing really fucking happened. And look, honestly, I just don't see Sean breaking into the top five and having much success, if any. But fuck it. If you're going to give him someone who does give him the opportunity to show off and show out, then Bilal Muhammad's the fucking perfect person for it. It's like when, you know, the matchmakers teed up, uh, what's his name? Piera with Sean Strickland. Like, oh, okay. So you're going to give him the guy 
whose entire game is point fighting with the jab, and who is kind of susceptible to a good feint, which, I mean, we're all fucking aware, Pierre is his feint into left hook, it's fucking money, you know, this, this kind of feels a case of, we like Sean Brady, this is the matchmakers, the matchmakers are there saying, we like Sean Brady, and we want to give him a favorable matchup, and we also simultaneously think Bilal is kind of boring as fuck, and we want to give him a matchup that's probably going to be quite difficult to win, but then simultaneously, I think Bilal could win this on the feet just by virtue of his kicking offense, um, and I just don't think Sean's the best striker in the world, his jab's pretty, you know, he stays quite square, just square when striking thing, when, when throwing strikes, yeah, I think Sean Brady, I mean, he's the favorite in this instance. He's $1.74 here in Australia on Sportsbet. I think he should be, honestly, because I just, I I like Bilal, but, oh, man. I know I bet against him and, and thought Vicente was going to, going to beat him in their rematch, but in retrospect, you can see how it might have been an issue for Luke. There might have been some, some problems going into that fight for Luke. It being like Bilal's, you know, wrestling-oriented offense and the fact that Vicente will cut the cage quite diligently, but guys can get off the cage against him. It's not like he... It's not like they get suffocated against the cage. Like, Mike Perry was able to step around the outside and get off the cage repeatedly versus Luke. And Bilal was just utilizing some really... I mean... As much as we were kind of clowning on Bilal for some of the the shit in that fight, and and the fact that the fight was quite dull, you know, I thought his his lateral movement, his side to side work was was great. He didn't really allow Luke to get comfortable and land the double jab or, or land the left hook. And you know, the fear against Luke is if you're using a lot of lateral movement, is oh, I'm going to circle into a left hook, and that didn't happen at all. You know, Bilal was. I mean, Luke got close, landed some some shots here and there, but I think he had a really successful third round. It was that Luke had, but besides that, Bilal was really good at nullifying the threat of the left hook and not allowing himself to get pushed up against the cage and and stuck in one spot. So I think this is probably going to be an interesting fight, but it's, it's going to come down to the wrestling. I think Sean Brady is probably just going to take Bilal down, sit in top half guard, and not do anything. And it'll probably be boring as shit, and I won't give a fuck. But, whatever, it is what it is. Rudolph's back versus Kyra Baraglio. Cool. Nikita Krilov's back against Volkan Uzdemir. Nikita Krilov is the favorite. Oh, my God. All I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, to those of you at home, like, I've just noticed this line. I hadn't seen this line before. Volkan Uzdemir is $2.53. I understand that Volkan Uzdemir is kind of over the hump now. All right? He's had some shitty performances recently. The performance against Paul Craig was ugly. It was an ugly fight. And obviously, you know, lost to Magomed Ankalaev back in October last year. But it went to decision. Like, you didn't get fucking blown out of the water. It wasn't that fucking entertaining of a fight as well, if I recall correctly. You know? And, you know, he got finished by Yuri Prohaska, but he hurt Yuri back in 2020. And then there was the Ilya Latifi fight a couple of years ago. Beat Alexander Rakic in late 2019. Like... Vulcan got a great left hook to the body. Yes, he stands a little too tall, and I think he's gone over the hump, and, you know, he, he looks... Oh, Paul Craig, man, that fight was a fucking mess. But 
oh, I just think he has the weapons. He has the outside low-kicking game. His distance control is actually pretty decent when he's not as worried about the grappling as he was versus Paul Craig. I just don't think Nikita Krilov's that fucking good. So the fact that Volkan Uzdemir is $2.53 here on Sportsbet, if you find a better line than that, fuck, mate. Jump on that shit. Fucking hump the fuck out. That That's guaranteed fucking money. That is my sure bet of the week. I know I said this after, what's it called? Chris Curtis. Like, before Chris Curtis versus Jack Manson, I was out here being like, this is a fucking guaranteed payday, babies. I understand that I said that in the past, and I apologize. But Nikita Krilov, yeah, he got close with some submission attempts on Glover Teixeira a couple of years ago, but I don't know what. He's coming off a fucking victory over who fucking the most washed version of Alexander Gustafsson conceivable. You know, lost to fucking Paul Craig before that. Y'all remember that shit? And then lost to Magomed Ankalaev back in, in early 2021. I just think that one's pretty much a layup for Vulcan to me. So if you have some money to put on a fight, put it on Vulcan to me this weekend. Thank you very much. Zabara Takugov's back. He's fighting Lucas Almeida. Fucking cool. Abubakar Magomedov. Fucking Gadzi. Amakaradziev. Amagadziev? Oh my God, Ziev. That's what I'm going to go with. Yeah, cool. I don't know. There's there's a lot of fights on here. AJ Dobson versus Armand Petrosian should be a banger. I'm very excited for that one, actually. And you also have Muhammad Makayev, who's taking on Malcolm Gordon, who is $9.50. Makayev is $1.06. That is an absurd line. Put some money on Malcolm Gordon immediately because... I don't know, if you actually watched Makayev's last fight, I mean, I was impressed by him. Don't get me wrong. I was very impressed by Makayev's, his most recent performance. But it wasn't as frenetic a performance as we were expecting. You know, he came out and he, he fucking blasted through Cody Durden in his UFC debut. And then against Charles Johnson in his most recent fight, it went three rounds. And I thought Makayev looked really good on top. Thought he was doing great. I mean, his takedown attempts were sensational. But, yeah. I don't know if he's worth a dollar six based on that performance. But, you know, we'll see. Anyway, so that's that's about it. It's been about an hour and ten minutes of me waffling. Um, What's up for the next few weeks? Because I haven't had internet and I've been in the process of moving and I've been working fuckloads, it's been... It's been a difficult month to prioritize making content for you guys and making and improving the Fight Figures YouTube page. But I do intend to make a video pretty soon, probably in advance of UFC 221. Obviously, there are... two, Not 221, 281. There are some great fights on that card. Um, I'm kind of thinking about making a video on Weili Zhang. Or Zhang Weili, sorry. But... You know, that's kind of... We'll, we'll see how that goes. We'll see how that goes. Uh, I might also do something on Calvin Cater versus Arnold Allen before that fight happens because I really like Arnold Allen. And I really like Calvin Cater and I think it's a fucking sensational fight. And that's happening... When's that happening? Next week. Um, but also, it's worth noting, I the vast majority of my fight figures shit, the stuff that... Like the assets that I use for fight figures, so the logo, and um, I, I have saved a million fucking fights from all the videos I've made. 
that's all on a hard drive that I believe has either corrupted or my computer just simply can't handle now because the little hard drive is like a terabyte large and it beeps whenever I plug it into my computer. So I have to go I have to go fix that and maybe get a new hard drive, go get my data recovered so that I can actually make videos again because I've there are so many fight figures things that I just had on that hard drive and now I can't access them. So it makes it very difficult to make a fucking video if I, c I don't have access to my fucking logo, basically. If I don't have a PNG version of my logo. So, yes, I got to do that before I can really dig in and make another video. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Anyway, that's pretty much it for this weekend. Pretty much it for this fight card. I think there are other stuff. There, are, there would be other fights happening this weekend just having a look at the MMA subreddit and seeing what else is going on there's a there's a one championship card oh there's a Lineker Andrade card fuck yes can't wait to watch John Lineker back hopefully we'll see there's some Cabriel Tolos on that card he's going to be grappling versus Kurzev cool Pampayak he's back he's going to be fighting in Superlek awesome Abutasa Oh my god, Muhammad Batasa is on the card. He's fighting... Oh man, I'm going to struggle with the pronunciation of this one. Sitsom Pinyong. Uh, Butasa, I only saw him for the first time in his most recent fight. His, his most recent fight was versus uh, David Kiria. And that was at one championship, 157. He was so good. That was back in May. I was so incredibly impressed. Please, if you get the opportunity to watch anyone on that one card, go check out that fight with Sitsom Pinyong. Because I just based purely off of Butasa. He is he was so impressive. And I think that will be a fucking banger. Daniel Williams is also back on the prelims. He's fighting Miato. We love Daniel Williams over here. He is an Australian. He's fucking dope as all shit. There's man, there's a couple of really good fights on this card. Um Yeah. I think you should definitely if you've got time. When is that? I believe that's on today. Has it already happened? Am I like... Oh, hold on. Yeah, John Lineker just... I just realized. Three hours ago. I just looked it up now. John Lineker missed weight. And he's been stripped of his championship. So... <laughs> only Fabrizio Andrade is able to win the belt. Similar to uh, Charles Oliveira versus Justin Gaethje. Can you believe this shit? Can you believe this shit? Oh my god. I get excited for something and then literally 10 seconds later, just gets fucking... gets destroyed. There's also a Risen card that's taking place this weekend. Who's on that card? Mashiku. Who else? To be honest, uh, I don't know much about this card. I don't know many of the individuals on this card. I feel bad. I feel completely out of the loop. But hey, I haven't had internet for about a month and a half. So, you know, fucking sue me, alright? Anyway, that's that. I will catch you next week. Uh, pray for the death of my housemate's bird. I will not personally kill it, but if someone decides to break into my house and throttle it themselves, then be my fucking guest. Anyway... Love you all. Catch you later. Bye.